Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It's a really gratifying moment for all of us, uh, I know. And the work that was uh, honored today with the Pulitzer's here, it's a model of the values that... uh, that have sustained the post over the years and that will sustain us into the future. Uh, We dig for the truth, we tell it straight, we tell it honestly and without fear, and we tell stories in ways that uh, command attention, that inspire awe and inspire action. That was Washington Post executive editor Martin Barron in his newsroom celebrating the two Pulitzer Prizes the paper won in 2014. Few figures in journalism were as venerated as he was. The story of his investigation into sexual abuse and cover-up by the Catholic Church for the Boston Globe was made into the Academy Award-winning movie Spotlight. He led the Washington Post through a time of explosive racial tensions, the Me Too movement, and vitriol against the press some of it coming from the former president of the United States. Martin Barron reflects on being at the epicenter of journalism in the United States Capitol in his excellent new book, Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post. Martin Barron, good morning. Good morning. Does hearing a moment like that, um, a happy moment, make you wish you were still in the newsroom? Uh, I look back with a lot of fondness on uh, my time in, uh, in newsrooms, uh, heading up uh, three different newsrooms. Uh, But by the time I retired at the end of February 2021, I felt very much ready to uh, move on. I was uh, pretty exhausted. You know, these jobs are not just 24-7. They're really 24-7 every minute now. Uh, And uh, you deal with a lot of pressures, both from uh, the White House under under the Trump administration and then some internal pressures as well. And I just felt it was the time had come to move on. And I feel uh, comfortable with that decision. There's a lot of news right now, though. And I just wonder whether there's a little part of you that thinks, damn, I wish I was still in there doing that job. (laughs) Uh, A little part. Uh, It's not the majority part. I got to say, I feel I did it. Uh, I dealt with a lot of big stories, uh, many of which I recount in the book. And at some point, uh, you feel like, uh, okay, I've done it. It's maybe somebody else's turn to take on the responsibility for all of this. What went through your mind when you learned that um, one of the richest men in the world, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, was buying the Washington Post? I thought it was going to be good for the Post. Uh, We were sliding into oblivion, really. Uh, We didn't have a sustainable business model. Uh, I thought he would bring uh, some fresh thinking, and God knows we needed that in our profession. He would bring knowledge of technology. I thought that he would uh, would certainly bring capital. I was encouraged about what it meant for the Post, so I thought it would be good for the Post, but I wasn't sure it was going to be good for me. Uh, The usual equation is new owner, new editor. Uh, So I thought maybe that would come into play. But I was also a little nervous about it. Uh, Obviously, he has huge business interests. We had actually just published uh, some of the most sensitive uh, information and the most sensitive national security documents, uh, the leaks by Edward Snowden. And Amazon had uh, big cloud computing contracts with the CIA. 
so I was concerned that uh, maybe we'd, we couldn't do the kinds of stories that we had done in uh, covering the, the Snowden documents. And uh, and also he has other business interests, obviously, with Amazon, huge issues that we needed to cover, the labor practices, intrusions into privacy, its impact on the retail landscape, lobbying activities in Washington, a whole variety of things. And obviously you had to be concerned about uh you know, would we be able to cover him independently? As it turned out, we were able to do that. Mm. He permitted us to do that. He didn't interfere in our coverage. So um, it worked out. At the beginning, I didn't know that it would. But um, if uh, the owner starts getting meddling in our in our coverage, uh, you can be sure that a staff like the one at the Washington Post would be objecting and letting the world know about that and fighting back. But there have been no such stories. He's owned the Post since October of 2013. Uh, we're now past the 10th anniversary of that, and there's been zero evidence of that. And the reason that there's zero evidence of that is because it simply didn't happen. What did he tell you about why he wanted the paper? Talked about a variety of things, a variety of gates that he needed to go through to decide whether he wanted to purchase it. One was whether it was an important institution, and of course he he concluded that it was. Uh, number two was whether it had a future, um, because if it didn't have a future, he would, as he put it, he would feel sorry for us, but he wouldn't want to join us. And uh, third is whether he had something significant to contribute. Uh, and he concluded that he did, uh, that he could offer us what he called runway, which was time and money uh, to make the transition to a digital era. You know, that sort of covered the surface. I felt I wasn't entirely satisfied with that answer. It, it seemed sort of mechanistic to me and uh, prepackaged, you know, but I think there were other reasons. Uh, one is that I think that he felt that he could turn it around, that he had a strategy, he had thought through a potential strategy for the post. And uh, he felt that we could become a national and even global uh, news institution, which was not our strategy at the time. We were very much focused on our region. And uh, he felt that with our base in Washington, with our name, the Washington Post, with our history and heritage going back to Watergate, of shining a light in dark corners uh, and holding government accountable, that we could uh, develop that into a national and global inst news institution. Uh, but I also think that and this, I know this sounds naive to people, but I think it's been proven to be true. And that is that he felt very, he felt that the news media plays a really important role in our democracy. He really believes in the United States. He believes in democracy. And I think he felt that he could make a contribution that way. Did you feel at, at all conflicted between the guy who, who stood up for the paper, who said to you know people in the newsroom, don't worry about me, I can handle whatever comes my way, the guy who, who injected a lot of money into the paper itself, and the, the billionaire who, who has some pretty terrible labor practices in, in his other day job. He was asked about this right at the beginning, his first town hall with the people on our news staff. Uh, he was asked how we could cover him. And he said, look, you can cover me and you can cover Amazon any way you'd like. He never reneged on that. We wrote about Amazon's labor practices. We wrote about its privacy intrusions. We wrote about its products almost never favorably. <laughs> um, at one point, uh, you know, our product reviewer actually called Amazon to use the word creep uh, to describe their approach to some of their products. Uh, I never heard about that from Bezos. We covered his uh, divorce, his affair, 
And so, yes, there's a potential conflict, but then I think people need to take a look at the actual coverage. And those who have looked at the actual coverage have concluded uh, that we did operate with um, incredible independence and that in many instances, our coverage was even more aggressive than our that of our competitors. You tell this story about going to dinner with Jeff Bezos at the White House with Donald Trump. What was that like? Pretty weird. I was very wary. <laughs> pretty, pretty weird. I was I was very wary of that meeting because Trump is a very transactional individual. Uh, if he gives you something, he expects something in return. And of course, if he gave us the, the opportunity to have dinner with him, he would expect something in return as well. And also, the fact was that Bezos was going to accompany us to the to the White House. And we had been saying publicly and accurately that Bezos wasn't involved in our news coverage, that he didn't get involved in the substance of our news coverage. And his uh, the fact that he was he was coming with us to the White House would have suggested to Trump that, in fact, he was involved in the news coverage or could be involved in the news coverage if he wished to be. And then maybe he could be persuaded to be involved in the news coverage in Trump's favor. And so I was very nervous about how Trump would interpret this meeting. And as it turns out, I, my interpretation was accurate. Uh, Trump, on the very next day, called Bezos and asked him to get involved and to, say, as he put it, try to make the coverage more fair to him. And Bezos said, used a line that had actually been prepared for the previous evening, and that was if if Trump brought it up. And and he told Trump after, during that call, uh, "Well, I don't get involved in the news coverage, and if I did get involved." I would regret it for the rest of my life. And then Trump, at the end of the uh, of the call, said, "Well, if you uh, if you ever need it, if you ever need anything, give me a call." Basically, soliciting, uh, inviting Bezos to ask for a favor. Uh, Bezos never asked for that favor, thankfully. And then subsequent to that, Trump called me to complain about a couple of stories, uh, yelling at me, uh, spending an inordinate amount of time objecting to coverage when surely there must have been more important things for a president of the United States to be doing. In those calls, he, he told you that the Washington Post is a big fat lie. He talked about the press being the enemies of the people. What did that mean for the lives of the reporters who were directly targeted by the president of the United States? Um, he, you know, he, saw, he didn't just seek to criticize us. He sought to dehumanize us. He called us enemy of the people, which suggested we were traitors. But he also said that we were the lowest form of uh, humanity. And then he even went beyond that, saying we were the lowest form of life itself. And then he would name check people in his social media posts on Twitter, particular reporters, with the deliberate intention of subjecting them to harassment and even physical threats, which many of them had to face. That was a really dangerous activity. Uh, he was warned not to do that. Uh, various people told him that that was dangerous to engage in that kind of rhetoric, uh, that somebody was going to get would get hurt at some point. His response to that was merely to double down and triple down on that kind of rhetoric. And it is very dangerous, and uh, it's not only a threat to it's, a th it's not only a threat to free press, a free and independent press in our country, but it's a, a, th a threat to the physical safety of of individuals on our staff. Your response to that was to tell your newsroom, "We are not at war with this administration; we're at work." What did you mean by that? Yeah, uh, I mean, remember that on the first full day of uh, that Trump was in the White House, he went to the CIA and uh, and he was standing in front of a memorial for fallen CIA agents. And what did he choose to talk about? The media. He said, uh, as you know, uh, I have a running war with the media. 
essentially seeming to invite the intelligence community to participate in that war on the medium. So a few weeks later, I was asked about my reaction, and I said, well, we're not at war with the administration, we're at work. And what I meant by that is the work that we originally signed uh, under the First Amendment, uh, what the founders had in mind. The principal author of the First, of the first Amendment was James Madison, and he talked about um, uh, freely examining public characters and measures. Examining means that journalism is more than stenography. Uh, it means uh, going deeper, going behind the curtain, going beneath the surface. Uh, who put policies into place? Who are they going to affect? Who influenced those uh, those policies in the first place? Those kinds of questions that need to be that need to be addressed. Uh, so it's an examination. It's uh, holding government to account. Uh, that was the idea. The public characters. Those are the politicians, including and especially the president of the United States, the people who work in government, uh, the powerful individuals and institutions uh, that influence government and have an enormous impact on the lives of ordinary people. And the measures that uh, that uh, Madison referred to, those are the policies. And so that's you could call that the original assignment given to the press in this country. And that is the work. Uh, and that is what we should do. And that's what we should commit ourselves to doing. And Trump, who swore allegiance to the Constitution of the United States, never seemed to understand that elemental concept uh, of our country. And so that's what I meant when I said, well, we're not at war. We're at work. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. There are journalists, perhaps even at The Post, who believe that with the freedom of the press under threat... Um, that 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 idea didn't meet the moment, that now was exactly the time, or that was the exactly the time to go to war with the Trump administration. And you heard that from outside, from media critics, but as I say, I'm sure you heard that from, from your own newsroom as well. What did you think of that argument? I don't think that's a terribly strong argument, frankly. I've seen a lot of great journalism have enormous impact over the years. And I think that if we see ourselves as partisans, and if we behave as partisans, we will be viewed as partisans, and our journalism will have um, will be less acceptable to the American public. It will have less credibility with the American public. And we shouldn't come in with the idea that we already have all the answers, that we know who our enemies are, uh, and that we act as if they are our enemies. I don't think that's an appropriate way for the press to behave. I don't think it's an effective way for the press to, to behave. And I don't think it's a constructive mentality for the press either, if our goal is really to... Um, discover the truth, and do it in an open-minded, independent way. This goes to the idea of objectivity, which you spend a good chunk of the book talking about. And, and what objectivity isn't, you say it's not neutrality, but what it is. You say that we must be more impressed with what we don't know than what we know or we think we know. Can you just elaborate a bit more on that and, 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 and how that plays out into what you see as the role of a journalist today? Well, objectivity is a concept that goes back more than 100 years. It was uh, popularized by Walter Lindman, a very prominent American journalist. 
Uh, and the idea really was that, uh, look, all of us have our preconceptions, we have our own views, uh, but those those preconceptions can blind us to facts that um, we may not be aware of or to perspectives that we may be unaware of. Uh, and so it's important to move beyond that and to approach our journalism in an open-minded, independent, rigorous, comprehensive, and thorough way. Um, when we've done our work, when we've been open-minded, when we've been fair, when we've been thorough and rigorous and independent, and we've looked at all of the evidence, there's an absolute obligation under the concept of objectivity to be fair to the public. And being fair to the public means telling them what we've actually found to be true. But we also have to be, we also, as journalists, we have to recognize that uh, we're often seeing the world through a keyhole. And sometimes we're able to crack the door open and see a lot more. And if we're lucky and we're really successful, we can swing the door wide open and we can see the total picture. But uh, there's a lot that we don't know at the beginning, uh, and we should recognize that, and we should approach our own work with a, some humility that um, and recognize that there's there's just a lot that we're not aware of, and so we have to work hard to discover what we are not aware of, and that's why I say people should be we should be more impressed with what we don't know than with what we know or think we know. Do you understand why objectivity has become a dirty word for many? In part because people will say that it is it is a position of privilege to be able to come at it with, maybe that conflates the idea of objectivity with neutrality, but to come at it with with a removed perspective rather than a perspective that, that is informed by the life that somebody is living. The notion of objectivity is, it acknowledges the limitations of our, our, own, our own life experiences and says, no, we go, let's go out and talk to other people. Let's go look at all of the evidence. Let's listen to what people have to say. Let's be open. So while I understand the objections, I can't say that I I agree with them. How is that complicated for journalists who post on social media? You say that day after day, Twitter seemed to bring out the reporter's worst and unthinking impulses. Give me an example of that. <laughs> Uh, well, there are plenty of them. I think there, there are plenty of them uh, all the time. Uh where people are, you know, people were commenting on politics of Trump or whatever he happened to say. There are people who are commenting these days on the Middle East, people who are who are uh, not fully knowledgeable about the region. I mean, on, on all sides of the issue, frankly. And so it cuts across a lot of different a lot of different subjects. And, you know, people are posting without any editorial review. They're typically posting within uh, seconds or minutes of learning of something. They're often posting in reaction in reaction to some other uh, social media post uh, without having independently verified its uh, its veracity. Uh, it's largely impulsive and it's largely based on uh, very limited information, and often by people who are not involved in covering particular subjects, but who seem to think that they know everything about that subject, even though they haven't actually reported on it. And yet you have journalists who are leaving. I mean, if you talk about, for example, the, the, what's happening in the Middle East right now on the war between Israel and Hamas, you have journalists who are leaving their jobs because they feel muzzled online, journalists who are pushing back and the idea that they can't post their opinions because the journalistic policies would, would prevent them from being their full selves. What do you say to that? There are many advocacy news organizations out there. I mean, advocacy journalism is, has a long history in, in, in democracies. But if they work at a place that doesn't want to be to engage in advocacy journalism, then it's then it's not a good fit. Then they're entitled to go somewhere else, and and maybe it, maybe it'll be a better fit for them. 
Advocacy has a really honored role in democracy, but it is not the same as being a journalist. If we are participants in the very events that we are covering, then we cannot cover them independently. Um, and I think it's important for an institution like the Washington Post to cover uh, events with true independence. I was just going to say, you admit in the book that that you're swimming against a mighty tide in saying this. You had a meeting with with staff around social media and you wrote a note to yourself saying, I have never felt more distant from my fellow journalists. Did you feel like you'd lost the newsroom in some ways by by holding that position? Uh, I don't feel I'd lost the entire newsroom, but I'd lost a, a certain portion of the newsroom who felt that way. And I felt the others who were uh, who agreed with me were unwilling to speak up for fear of being uh, finding themselves in conflict with their colleagues in the newsroom. So I wouldn't say that I lost the newsroom, but I, I just felt a distance from people in terms of our approach to journalism. And I didn't want to do battle, constant battle with the people I worked with. It's just not comfortable. I mean, I dealing having to do battle with Donald Trump is one thing, but having to do battle, I mean, do battle. He was doing battle with us and we were trying to do our work, but having to deal with that every day is one thing. But having to be in conflict with the people that you are, who are your colleagues you're working with every day is deeply uncomfortable. And and we seem to have a very different view about the role of journalism. I think it was would have been very difficult to continue and find myself as I tried to enforce our, what I felt were pretty clear guidelines about how journalists should comport themselves. If I if I found myself constantly in conflict with people about that, uh, that was going to be deeply uncomfortable. And it certainly represented a huge gap between um, my view of how journalists should handle themselves and what journalism should be versus how at least a portion, a significant portion of the staff felt. How much of that was generational, do you think? Uh, a substantial amount, not entirely, but I would say in, uh, heavily generational for sure. Let me just ask you, before I let you go, just a couple of things, finally. One is, is it's just been a, a tough few years for the press. You have newspapers closing. You have assaults on freedom of the press. You have people who believe what they want to believe and don't believe that they should hear from a range of different perspectives that might help shape their own perspective. Um, are you optimistic about about this industry that you have spent so much time in? I am optimistic, and I, I don't think we can afford to be anything but optimistic. We're not going to succeed if we think we're going to fail. So, and I am very hopeful that we as an industry and as a profession will will succeed. I do think that we, the greatest challenge we face is that we as, soci as a society don't share a common set of facts, but it's even worse than that. We can't even agree on how to establish that something is a fact. I recently, not too long ago, heard Margaret Atwood talk about how people have confused beliefs with facts. Mm. And that is surely the case. People consider their beliefs to be facts when they aren't, when the evidence doesn't support that. And so, you know, I, we have a lot of work to do as a profession and as a society overall to to present people with the evidence, to to be convincing, to be persuasive that the work we're doing is is valid, legitimate, uh, honorable, honest, uh, and fair, um, rigorous, all of that. I think so. I think we need to take a good look at ourselves and ask, well, how can we do that better? and commit to doing it better. You know, on the whole, I think that, you know, there is, if we remain a democracy, uh, there will be a role for the free press. Um, I think it's really important for the public to understand that while it's true that there can be no free press without a democracy, there also can be no democracy without a free and independent press. 
Last question, and this goes back to, in some ways, where we started. And I don't know whether Donald Trump running again for president is the kind of thing that would want to get you back into the newsroom or not, given the way that you describe your interactions in the book. I mean, he could he could very well be president again. And so what, what would be advice that you would give the media on how to cover him? Uh, well, I think it's very important that we uh, put our emphasis on uh, what a second Trump administration would be like. I think it's important to remember uh, that he's the only politician, certainly I've ever heard of, who's talked about suspending the Constitution. Uh, he's talked about uh, weaponizing the Justice Department against his enemies. He's talked about uh, deploying the military to suppress uh, entirely legitimate protests under the uh, rubric of the Insurrection Act. He's talked about uh, bringing treason charges against the uh, then outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and, and most likely having him executed. He's talked about bringing treason charges against the media, particularly Comcast, which owns NBC and MSNBC. Uh, he continues to talk about crushing a free and independent press. Those are the characteristics of an authoritarian government. That is not an opinion of mine. Those, by definition, that is what authoritarianism is. Uh, and I think it's really important that we make clear to the American public what they're in for if uh, Trump gets back into the White House. Uh, obviously, it is up to the American public to decide what kind of government they wish to have for themselves, but they should really understand what they are going to get. And so we do have a tendency to focus on the horse race. That's the nature of politics. We'll never you know, we'll never stop doing that. So we look at the polls and things like that. But I think we need to take a look at the balance of our coverage. And I think the predominant focus of our coverage should be reporting aggressive, energetic, uh, thorough reporting on what a second Trump administration would be like. I really enjoyed this book. Um, and it's a great pleasure to have the chance to talk to you, Martin Barron. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, man. Martin Barron is the former executive editor of the Washington Post. His book is Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and the Washington Post. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.